Hello, friend. You are listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod, an all things Wizard of Oz podcast that will take you over the rainbow and down a yellow brick rabbit hole as we pull back the curtain on American culture's most visited fairyland. We are your hosts, Tara and MK, the royal revisionists of Oz and roommates in Queens, New York here to preserve the rustic emeralds of yesteryear and reimagine an Oz for today and future generations. This season, we will be deep diving with the melodies of the many musical adaptations of L. Frank Baum's original Oz book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, taking up residency in the 1939 classic MGM film, as well as the 70s super soul hit, The Wiz. Visit our Insta at Down the Yellow Brick Pod for an accompanying scrapbook and fave space to connect, as well as our Patreon community where we continue the escapism and entertainment with Tiny Oz concerts, acoustic coffee shop covers and mashups, not sponsored by NPR, and other good witchy perks for each Patreon tier. Our Patreons are truly our MVPs. Consider joining our Oz fam today, it would truly make our day. May the world of Oz continue to be a bewitching escape in bewildering years, nostalgic and nuanced, and a magical refuge where two gals and queens can cross yellow brick roads with wonders like you. M, I'm handing you now <laughs> the research hat. The research hat has been handed. It's putting, put on your head. Okay, let's see if I can make sense of this. I'm here for Let me tell you the first source I consulted. The first source is the American Film Institute website. There's a really great article, which I will link, that has a really cool, it details the timeline of how this came about. So let me share some of this and let's see how we feel. February 9th, 1976. Daily Variety announced that 20th Century Fox Film Corporation decided against producing a film adaptation of The Wiz even though they yeah. were financing its theatrical run. Yeah, they just were like, nah. We're not into yeah, this. Nah. Despite early economic losses during an undersold U.S. tour and the uh-huh. negative New York Times review that you mentioned, Fox invested, as you already mentioned today, in the, the extensive television advertisement campaign, which really helped them mm-hmm. recoup mm-hmm. their finances. In the wake of Fox's refusal to back a feature film adaptation, Ken Harper optioned the property for 18 months, with two unidentified major Hollywood studios interested in the project. At the time, Ken Harper was also thinking of financing the picture independently with the support of tax-sheltered investors. I'm not sure who those would be and what that means. But apparently at one point, as we mentioned, Ken Harper, he's always like, I'm going to do this. I'm gonna... They don't have to pay Do taxes. they get a break on taxes? Tax-sheltered. Tax-sheltered. Okay, Ken. He's like, we're making this happen. Here's an interesting thing that I didn't know much about. I had heard about this, but apparently Ken Harper speculated that Fox's disinterest in producing a motion picture stemmed from Fox's belief that the musical might get locked into what is called a black exploitation genre. So have you heard of this? Yes. I think we mentioned it maybe once. Yeah. I don't know really how to define that. So... The umbrella term of an exploitation film is a film that attempts to succeed financially by exploiting current trends, niche mm. genres, or lurid content. It so, says. like the first, what we would now say is tokenizing. Tokenizing. That's what I would say. Yeah. Okay. Is like, let's, uh, that TikTok trend, this is, I'm watering it down. That yeah, TikTok yeah. trend, let's get on that. But this is like people <laughs> that they're kind of exploiting. Yes. So, yeah. Black exploitation, which is yes. sort of okay. p- piecing mm-hmm. them together, is a subgenre that came about in the early 1970s. It was coined by Junius Griffin, who was president of the Hollywood NAACP branch, um, and he named it because he claimed the genre was, quote, proliferating offenses to the black community in its perpetuation of stereotypical characters often involved in criminal activity. So it sounds like it was just stereotyping. So apparently Ken Harper was worried that this might happen. The genre apparently was the among the first film genres in which black characters and communities weren't just sidekicks or villains, but they were like the subject of the film. So it's kind of like murky 
territory. It's like it was being, they were being stereotyped, but they, for the first time, were at the forefront. Most of it was struck to, it was production teams were still white, from what I'm gathering. Predominantly white. Yes. So it's kind Mm -hmm. of murky. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And these films were aimed at an African-American audience. Um, And then eventually, once the genre became bigger, it sort of broadened. Because everyone on the creative team, not everyone, majority of the creative team for the Wiz film would be white. Right. Quincy Jones, like, no. Right. There's very few. Very few. Yeah, I'm thinking of Quincy Jones. That's it. I, I, I mean, that's not it. That's not it. Right, right, but that, right. Like, but, like, that roles, sticks out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not the director. Yeah. Okay. So, that's an interesting thing. Not Julie Andrews' husband. <laughs> not Tony Walton. <laughs> but Ken Harper remained undeterred. I mean, All- do we know anything <laughs> about this man? This is the only thing we know. Also, at this time, keep in mind, television situation comedies, like, Good Times, The yes. Jefferson, Sanford yes. and Son were sort of like putting black families and their day-to-day lives into the spotlight and into popular culture. On July 15th, 1976, here comes Universal Pictures and Motown Productions. They announced their acquisition of film rights as stated in a Daily Variety article published that day. How exciting. I love picturing like Daily Variety. Here's what's happening. Here's who has rights to uh, this film. We could, I guess, read that stuff now if we wanted to. Can we find it? I think that's what Variety still does, right? Yeah. Cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. By this time, Fox's profits, they're reaching into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they were worried that the production costs would be too expensive. At this time, Fox was still 100% financial backer of the musical, so the Universal Motown project was required to give that, to give Fox a sizable percentage of the film's profits. So this sounds a little messy. And as you mentioned earlier, when the show was on tour at the Amundsen Theater in Los Angeles, that was apparently like a really big success. That was huge. They, They were a theater that turned them down at first. Wow. Yeah. So apparently then Universal was like, okay, we can do this. This is exciting. Because that was a huge, it was topping box office records. And here's where Rob Cohen steps in. He's a producer. And he is basically the main player behind Universal's decision to purchase this property. Apparently back as early as 1975, he saw the show in its first year on Broadway. So he'd been wanting to make a film since then. He loved it. He loved it. Yeah. Um, And then Universal basically had a contract with Fox that said principal photography could begin no later than October 1st, 1977. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So, okay, we've reached this point where Universal Motown Productions have rights of the film. They are there. Let's talk a little bit about... Fox a little bit. Apparently that was... That was what was supposed to happen. probably made nothing on this film. I know. If Fox did get a cut. Okay, okay. I know. Because then I also read from Daily Variety, August 1977, the screen rights were set to return to Fox. We know they didn't fully because we know it's a Motown production. But yeah, I don't know. This sounds a little... Okay. I don't want to see those receipts. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so Motown Productions, enter Barry Gordy. Good old Barry Gordy the third. Barry Barry O'Berry. O'Berry. So a little bit of history on Barry Gordy, just since he is important with Diana Ross, who comes in later. He's important with her casting and Motown Productions. They have a love child together. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Uh, So Barry Gordy is an American. He's still alive today. He's an American. Which is Um, wild. I know. know. Both him and Diana Ross. Yeah. They're still here. He was born in Detroit. He is a record executive, producer, songwriter, film producer. He's basically like done it all. He founded the Motown record label and all of its subsidiaries, which Motown, the Motown record label was the highest earning African-American business for decades. So he like cornered the market on this. He also wrote many hit songs for the Jackson 5, including I Want You Back and ABC. Yeah, Motown the Musical. So I think Motown that's, the Musical. That's, that's all of his music. <laughs> he wrote those songs. Like, yeah. that's who we're talking about here. He's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall, Hall of Fame. He was awarded the National Medal of yeah. Arts by Every Obama. Award. Every he award. has Every all award. of that. Just take them all. <laughs> take them, Barry. 
Motown Productions is now called DePass Entertainment. It's run by entertainment oh. executive Suzanne DePass. It's an American film and television production company that was first founded as Motown Productions by Barry Gordy in 1968. Wow. I'm learning so much. Right? This is fun. Um, Their original focus back in the late 60s was the production of television specials for its star recording artists. So it was kind of like taking all their stars in the music industry and funneling them into television and maybe film. Um, Several of these shows starred Diana Ross and The Supremes, The Temptations, Smokey Robinson. Diana had her own show called Diana in 1971, The Jackson (laughs) 5. And then Suzanne DePass joined Motown in 1968, so very soon after. Um, and she really developed the Jackson 5 show from 1971 to 1973. How old was she? Oh, this is my favorite. When it says, born 1946, 47, or 48. <gasps> she was like 20. She was in her tw- early 20s. She's now in her like early 70s. She's young. And she developed these really hotshot Jackson 5, like, very famous groups in her 20s in her 20s wow. we gotta we gotta talk to her tear okay <laughs> add her add her so this production company is still around but back in the day when it was still known as motown productions they made a film called lady sings the blues in which yes. diana ross yes. plays huge billy holiday mm-hmm. um they they made a movie called mahogany which i don't starring think was diana ross. yeah starring diana <laughs> that i don't think was the best I think um, people liked it though. Yeah, I think they probably extra. liked it quotes better than the Wiz, I guess. I feel like Mahogany might have like a camp. A camp <laughs> it feels like a following. cult following. Yeah, yeah from camp, what I've read, can't be style. Yeah, but Barry Gordy had this gift for basically identifying talent, musical talent, and bringing people together to create groups. Um, he also was like really closely intertwined in crafting their public image, their dress, their manners, their choreography, which sounds a little, like, a lot. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, again, keep in mind, this was, like, the most successful African-American, like, business at the time, which is pretty cool. He signed such artists as The Supremes, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, uh, Gladys Knight and The Pips, The Commodores, Stevie Wonder, the uh, The Jackson Five. So... Just presencing Barry Gordy, mm-hmm. since this is a Motown production. But keep in mind, he is—he has like no involvement in the Wiz, which we'll right. get into. He basically kind of just steps away. Enter the casting of Diana Ross. <laughs> I heard a little bit about. This. Okay, um, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about her throughout yeah, the film. There's too much. To there talk is about. a lot, but just like. Maybe quick little bullet points. We know she's still alive. She's 77. She also has her wonderful daughter, Tracy Ellis Ross, who is on Blackish and is an incredible actor, um, actress. Um, but Diana Ross was also born in Detroit. She wanted to be a fashion designer, correct? She did, yes. So we can get into I mean, we don't, it's not even worth it to like talk about her accolades because too many. she's literally been named, just listeners, she's been named like the artist of the millennium. Like, wow. or the century. Like, I mean, she's got Supremes. all of it. Okay, just the Supremes alone. Alone is huge. Groundbreaking. Huge. Incredible. She's won every award. Today I passed by, I wasn't even trying to find it, the Diana Ross Playground in Central Park sent you a photo. She oh, is huge. Legend. And she's still around. She, um, I think they only added her name to the Supremes because they got more money or something like that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because initially it was not Diana and the Supremes. She said it wasn't a big pivot at the time yeah to do it it yeah. was to get them more money because yeah. if you have a lead singer mm-hmm. and backup then people the gig gets more money yeah <laughs> all right diana well she was born in detroit as we mentioned on her 14th birthday uh her family relocated to this new um neighborhood in detroit and she that's where as you mentioned she began taking classes at her high school including clothing design pattern making tailoring and she wanted to become a fashion designer and she had also taken modeling and cosmetology classes while she was there i also read this she she worked at a department store in high school and in many of her biographies um apparently she was the first black employee allowed outside of the kitchen i read that too Mm -hmm. so interesting um and for extra income she provided hairdressing services for her neighbors 
And then Detroit 1958. What did she do? <laughs> what didn't she do, y'all? She did so much. So, she's like again 16, like literally 16. Not even out of she has not yet. graduated high school because here's where we get into it. Detroit 1958. Florence Ballard, who's a junior high school student. Junior high school student? What? Um, she lives in... They're babies. <laughs> They're babies. They're, like, when I was in junior high, I was doing Annie Junior. Like, oh, I was like in my busted junior like, high's like, show. This is hilarious. They're like, hey, we're going to go like make a record. So, okay, Florence Ballard met Paul Williams and Eddie Kendricks, who were two members of a Detroit singing group known as The Primes. Okay. Ballard sang, as did Paul Williams' girlfriend, Betty McGlown. So Milton Jenkins, the Prime's manager, decided to create a sister group to their group to be called the Primettes. It's the Creamettes! The Creamettes! Fun fact, I once choreographed a dance to that. To Dreamgirls? Well, based off of Diana Ross and the Supremes. Amen. Amen. There's also a movie called, like, Sparkle... I'll watch them. That's also based on them? <laughs> okay, so Ballard recruits her best friend, Mary Wilson. Mary Wilson recruits her classmate, Diana Ross. dun da da dun Just like, hey girl, you want to be in this group? Do you want to be in my group? <laughs> I love this. And they're just like, okay, I wanted to be a fashion designer, but sure. Sure, I think I can sing, like, flawlessly, so. <laughs> I think I'm amazing and a legend. <laughs> so at age 15, Diana joins the Primettes. Um, and the Primettes! <laughs> They win this festival, a singing festival, on the 4th of July, 1960. And they're like, oh my gosh, we have to make a record. <laughs> it says, later, following local success via live performances at Sock Hops. Back in the day of Sock Hops. God, this is when I'm like, born the wrong era. I know. But then I'm like, I know. no, uh, there's a lot of crap. There's a lot of crap. You're going to love there's this. There's a lot of crap now. There's a lot of crap always. You're going to love this story if you okay. liked that last story. <sighs> Ross approached former neighbor and rumored childhood former boyfriend, William Smokey Robinson. Oh. <laughs> casual. That's really casual. Casual. Robinson agreed to bring the Primettes to Motown Records in exchange for letting him and the Miracles hire the Primettes guitarist for an upcoming tour. And guess what? The guitarist, Marv Tarplin, played in Robinson's band for the next 30 years. <laughs> Well, he didn't go back. <laughs> he did not go back. And apparently Ross has stated that it felt like a fair trade. Because the Primettes later auditioned for Motown Records. Booked Barry it. Gordy was there. Almost booked it. He basically, oh, in, in, his bi- in his autobiography, To Be Loved, he states that he was heading to a business meeting when he heard Ross singing, There Goes My Baby. And Ross's voice stopped me in my tracks. He approached the group and asked them to perform it again, but learning of their ages, Gordy advised them to come back after graduating high school. That's fair. fair. (laughs) I mean, that makes sense. But they did not give up. The Primettes basically uh, would frequent his Hitsville, USA recording studio. Eventually, they convinced Gordy to allow them to contribute hand claps and background vocals for the songs of other Motown artists. That's fun. Isn't that cute? I would do that gig now. They were just like, we're here. We are not giving I up. Live for a. Oh, it's so fun. Women's World and Full Monty. I'm You've got to have it. rhythm, you know. Fun I live for this every night. I do this song. But they get that number, and Tara crushed it, (laughs) and that's basically your your audio audio visual 
for what the primates we, um, were doing at we this point. We needed to go there. We needed that moment. I, I honestly love <laughs> a clap, clap, clap. Oh, it makes you feel I like need. you can do anything. It's all I need. People used to make fun of me in college because I started it everywhere. <laughs> hey, guys. It's lunch. They're <laughs> like, Tara, you do it every I time. want a chunky little butt. <laughs> it makes you just feel, especially if it comes in the middle of a song and it's like oh, dance it's break so and someone's so doing good. a flip. I think I use it in one of my audition songs, then. I'm overwhelmed. My Etta James song. Oh, I do it in. I love clapping in an audition song. Okay, we're going well, to too much down this rabbit hole. <laughs> well, this worked for them as it worked for you. Thank you. Because <laughs> in January 1961, Gordy finally relented and agreed to sign the girls to his label, but under the condition that they changed the name of their group. And he basically gave them a list of names to choose from. And this is when he chose Diana, as you mentioned, as the lead singer of the group. And Robinson and Gordy would write a lot of their songs. During the group's early years, Ross served as their hairstylist, their makeup artist, their seamstress, their costume designer. Oh, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot. (laughs) And what's great about them... A well-known thing about them is the Supremes, they embraced a very glamorous image and a very, like, their choreography was really flowy and it was very, there was just a lot of, yeah, elegant, elegance and glamour. Gordy renamed the group Diana Ross and the Supremes, as you mentioned, making it easier to charge a larger performance fee for a solo star and a backing group. Instead of just, I guess... A backing? Like, if they were just the Supremes, it would be less. Like a one, like a, okay. yeah, like a, just a group, I suppose. One thing to note is Gordy was really involved in Diana Ross's career in particular, and there was some tension, which we'll find out later. There was, This caused tension among the members of the group, um, but apparently, like, he, even as early as 1966, wanted her to maybe consider leaving the Supremes for a solo career, but he basically was in charge of, like, no, don't do that Barry, yet. Barry, Barry, where did y'all love go? Ooh. She stays with the Supremes Thank until God. early 1970. Thank the Lord. And it's interesting to note that the Supremes were the most commercially successful of Motown's acts and the most successful American vocal group with 12 number one singles on the Billboard Hot 100, and they basically rivaled the popularity of the Beatles. Keep that in mind. You know they have a concept album of Funny Girl and is the best thing I've ever listened to. Um, I'm going to need to listen to it's that. It's the right entire away. album of Funny Girl. What? It's With incredible. hand claps? We, I did a concert no, over the pandemic. I <laughs> I, we did a concert over the pandemic. I organized one with a friend of mine, and it was Whoa. all virtual. And we are, um, if a girl isn't pretty. That's a really silly <gasps> song. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it, we took the... Supreme version of that. Oh, yes. Okay, made I'm going like, to have to definitely listen to that. Make it slap, baby. Make it slap. Get those hand claps in there. That's really cool. Yeah, they. I mean, they, that's the thing. I feel like you could just fall down rabbit holes with them because they did so much. They did a lot. We're not even mentioning like, not, like, a sliver. Anything. A sliver. But focusing on, like, Gordy and Ross. Yes, yes. Um, Gordy was basically really diligently, like, driving her career and apparently this caused Diana a lot of anxiety How because... How many years older was he? Do we know? He Oh, he's 91 right now. Oh, it's um, 87. It's 14 years. There's a 14-year age difference. Okay, so to a 17-year-old, that is... That's a big difference. That's a big difference. That's a very big that's difference. 31. Yeah, they, <laughs> they have 14 years difference between them. Now in their elder years. It's yeah, nothing. they can make it work. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> it's nothing. But then that's huge. That's huge. And I mean, she was, they were very successful, but unfortunately Ross was suffering from anorexia nervosa. I didn't know she, I didn't know that. According okay. to her autobiography, um, Secrets of a Sparrow is what that is called. Secrets of a Sparrow? Secrets of a Sparrow. That's what? a great name. What is that about? What is that about? So much so that during a 1967 performance in Boston, Ross collapsed on stage and had to be hospitalized for exhaustion. And as we know, this was, you know, his specific interest in her was just causing some tension. This makes me think of Princess Diana. Right. Passing out and stuff. Yes, yes. So Diana embarks upon her solo career in 1970. She does a couple films. She is a huge star. Like, as we met, we don't have time, but 
just keep we in mind. We don't have time. We don't have time. I mean, for we, her supernova. <laughs> we will mention her, I'm sure, on many episodes mm-hmm. and with our guests since she is with us for this entire film. But just keep in mind, she was a huge star at the time. She was selling out concerts. She was... But just crossing over into film stardom. Mm-hmm. She had an Academy Award nomination for Lady Sings the Blues, and mm-hmm. I think she didn't, she didn't win that, but she won... The Golden Globe, I'm pretty sure. Ooh, yes, she did. She won the Golden Globe. You're right. So she was just beginning to cross over into film. She was obviously super successful in her music career. Um, and from 1965 through 1970, right before she embarks on her solo career, Diana and Gordy have their intimate romantic relationship. Okay, how old For a few she? years. Do we know? 1965. She was born in... 44, so she was 21, 21. and so he was like 35. Okay. Yeah. Big difference. Um, And they they did have a child together. Their uh, daughter is Rhonda Suzanne. She was born in 1971, Um, but her legal father is a man named Robert Ellis Silberstein. Who she divorced during the West. Who she also divorced, um, and apparently Rhonda- They became really good friends. I think so. Yeah. I think they're really good friends now. And apparently Rhonda didn't know Barry Gordy was her dad until, like, later in life. She also she Uncle just Barry, called right? him Uncle Barry. Uncle and Barry. she was always like, this makes sense now. Like, that's crazy, finding out your dad is, is Barry Gordy. Crazy. So, okay, let's get into Diana getting cast. Now that we know a little bit more about her. So John Badham was initially set to direct. Yes. Right? And he and Cohen both wanted Stephanie Mills. To mm-hmm. be Dorothy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So here we go. Let's get into this. There's this great, um, I haven't read the whole thing, but it's called Diana Ross, A Biography by J. Randy Tarabarelli. Fun huh. last name. It's like me. <laughs> Tarabarelli, Tarabarelli. So the initial concept from Motown was for The Wiz was to surround an unknown actress playing Dorothy yeah. with major stars. Uh, um, Shanice Williams and the Westlife. <laughs> exactly what they did. Stephanie Mills was apparently campaigning hard for the for the lead role. Oh, she um, campaign. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> campaigning. Um, this book says that Diana Ross first heard about the movie while having dinner with Suzanne DePoss, who we mentioned yes, earlier. Yes. When actor Ted Ross joined them briefly at their table, Mm -hmm. he and Suzanne began to enthusiastically discuss it, in which he had already been cast to reprise his stage role as a lion. Diana, who had seen The Wiz twice on Broadway and loved it, then became interested. Quote, darn, I would love to be Dorothy, she said to Suzanne. Suzanne said it was was supposed to be a low-budget film, and then changed the subject. (laughs) Here's where the drama ensues. According to Diana, that night she lay awake, thinking about both the Wiz and the Wizard of Oz. Quote, maybe even dreaming. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm making this dramatic for you. (laughs) At two in the morning, she rose and watched a videotape of the Garland original. Then she telephoned Barry. It's 2 a.m. Oh, now it's 5 o'clock. It's 5 a.m. She says, I want to play Dorothy. He says, who is this? He's awake. (laughs) (laughs) She says, I want to play Dorothy in the Wiz. He says, have you been drinking? She says, of course not. I've been watching The Wizard of Oz and I had this dream or something about being Dorothy. He cuts her off. Barry Gordy says, forget it. You're too, yeah, you're too old. You're too old to be any damn Dorothy. Now go to sleep. He hangs up on her. Diana thought that Barry basically had dismissed the idea, but he really trusted her and her instincts. So he immediately at 5 a.m. calls producer Rob Cohen. Rob apparently hears the phone ring and his heart is beating wildly. He knew that it was Barry. He knew something was happening for a 5 a.m. I hate this. He says, he says, Barry Gordy. I'm angry. I'm angry about this business call. Do not call me at 5 a.m. Don't call me ever. (laughs) Um, Apparently Barry Gordy never slept and Barry gets on the line. He doesn't say hello. He just gets straight to business. He says, I was on the phone with Diane a second ago. She had a dream or something that she played Dorothy in The Wiz. So what do you think about that? Prophetic. Prophetic dream. Rob had never thought of that idea. And he basically said, there's a lot of reasons why it's wrong. And one reason why it's right. Universal will pay her a million dollars to do it. And it'll mean getting this movie made. Financial benefits. But he also says she's too old. Barry says, that's the same thing I told her. 
Barry says, you know that she's going to not let it go. And Barry's like, wait, did you actually say they would pay her a million bucks? And eventually, Barry basically says, if you get her a million bucks, I'll tell her she can do it. And Barry hangs up. Rob Cohen spends the next hour pacing the floor. At 6 a.m., he started making telephone calls. After not much persuasion, Tom Mount, one of the executives in charge of the Wizard Universal, told Rob that yes, the studio would be interested in having Diana do the film, and that Universal would, in fact, pay her $1 million. Rob then calls John Badham, the, who was directing at the time. Yeah, he's not going to feel this and so much. He asks John how he would feel about directing Diana in the film. Badham immediately says this is a terrible idea, and I and he would not have anything to do with it. You can have her, but I don't want her, he said. She's all wrong. If Diana Ross is in, I'm out. He left the project, and he went on to direct Saturday Night Fever. Rob calls Barry, tells him that Universal's offer of a million dollars to Diana is happening, and John Badham quit. Apparently, here's an insight maybe into Barry and Diana's relationship. Diana calls Barry, and Barry doesn't tell her that the deal has already happened. He lets her kind of, like beg and beg and beg why she like really wants this role even though he already knew it was happening he just and this is from diana this is in her biography Mm -hmm. this is in her biography she's like i'm not too old it's ageless it's right for my career i'm serious and he finally laughs and says well guess what i already worked it out you're dorothy the role is yours and guess what else universal is going to pay you one million dollars i know very she's very excited and there you go. It was set before 7 a.m. That's insane. The middle of the night. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. There's, like, so little I do before 7 a.m. And she booked herself in this role. Booked because of a fake dream she had? I know. She just watched Interesting, the movie. Interesting, right? Maybe you should do this, like, with your dream role. Hi. <laughs> Wicked. Chelsea. <laughs> um, there's this... Film critic Pauline Kael, who described Ross's efforts to get the film and to get into the film as perhaps the strongest example of sheer will in film history. So, okay, John Badham has left. We get a new director, Sidney Lumet. You know, Fosse was on the on the list of people they really. Whoa, okay, that's cool. Yeah, he had all that jazz. He was like, I have all that jazz. Yeah, he's like, I'm busy, guys. (laughs) I would live for a Wiz production directed by Fosse. They also wanted the director of the Evita film that would happen in the 90s, Alan Parker. Oh. Yeah, and I think the funny girl director, Mm. Herbert Ross. Mmm. But they got Sydney. They got Sydney. (laughs) Um,. Well, back to what we said about Barry not being involved. Basically, this still kind of made people upset because it felt like another instance where Barry was just like, here, Diana, you get everything you want type thing. interjecting power. Yeah. But he wasn't involved with the actual film. Diana was actually really excited because this would be the first major project in which she would be involved without him. And she was like, yes, let's do it. This will be great. Amazing. So The Wiz was supposed to have a small budget. Once Diana Ross is the star vehicle, it becomes a major project. Um, they don't even want to set a budget because they're so excited. Um, this is where Sydney comes in. And this is where Sydney has the idea that the best way to make the film work would be to yeah. turn it into a modern-day Manhattan fantasy so that New York locations would be u- utilized. The budget was up to $30 million before they even got started. Mm-hmm. And then enter screenwriter Joel Shoemaker. He basically takes the Broadway script and kind yes. of trans- translates it for the screen. He comes up with the idea that Dorothy is a 24-year-old school teacher who lives in Harlem and gets swept up in a blizzard. Tony Walton comes on too. Tony Walton, Julie Andrews' first husband, is there doing costumes. Film editor Dee Dee Allen. Our favorite Dee Dee Allen! So, a little bit about these, this creative team. Yes, please. So, Joel T. Shoemaker, he was a director, he was a screenwriter, producer, he was raised in New York City. Um, he was also a fashion designer who had graduated from Parsons. Um, 
He entered filmmaking as a costume designer before gaining writing credits on Car Wash, Sparkle, and then The Wiz. <laughs> um, he gained Is prominent- Sparkle the movie about them? I think it might be. Dear God. Wait, let's see. Sparkle 1976. <laughs> oh my gosh, it is. Wild. Whoa, good catch. That's a 1976 film. Also set in Harlem. Okay, we should maybe watch that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, he writes that. He gains prominence after directing St. Elmo's Fire... He also replaced Tim Burton as director of the Batman franchise. And in 2004, he directed The Phantom of the Opera. I'm shaking my head. That is one of the worst ones. It's one of the worst movie musicals there it I've is. ever seen. There it is. There's a, there's a whole... <laughs> Tara's not over this. Oh, it was, that's, that's one of the roughest. I think it's one of the roughest out there. I could sit through Cats over that. Yikes. Yeah. I watched it when I was like cats 11, so I was like, too. I love it. It's bad. <laughs> it's also like the Phantom can't sing. Like, there's so right. many Who things. Who plays the Phantom? I don't remember. I know it's Emmy Rossum. She looks scared the whole time. <laughs> She's like, oh, God. I just don't. I remember just being like, yeah, not this a fan. is the Phantom movie. This, this can be better. Come on. I don't know. Come on. I don't know when. I don't know when. There's this really cool article I'll link. It's called Joel Shoemaker Tells Movie Line, this website, about the time he wrote The Wiz. <laughs> Remember that time? Here's a few quotes. I got The Wiz because my first two scripts that I sold and got made were Sparkle, which is about three African-American girls in Harlem who become stars, sort of a precursor to Dream Girls, and Car Wash. He says, um... Quote, I was kind of the black writer to some people. Let's presence the fact that he is a white man who passed away last year at age 80. So that's an interesting thing to say. Not something you would ever <laughs> have come out of your mouth. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, okay, Joel, we see you. Um, yeah. Yeah. Different times. 1970s. <laughs> Sidney Lumet was a friend of his and basically asked uh, Joel to write the screenplay for The Wiz. Quote, he says, I saw the play and it was so magical that I didn't think I could do anything with it at all. I said no. And everybody in Hollywood that I knew as friends or who were in the business said, are you insane? You're not going to do a huge musical with Sidney Lumet? And I thought there must be something wrong with me. So I got on a plane. He goes to meet Sidney in New York. Sydney says, I have great news. Diana Ross is going to play Dorothy. He, he's told about the concept of Oz being Manhattan. Sydney, as we'll get into, is also like a really hardcore, diehard New Yorker. And loves Diana. And loves Diana. Mm-hmm. Quote from Joel, I think everybody worked their asses off. The movie's so loaded with talent. I think that it was historic. I don't think any African-American film had been made at that budget up until that time. And here's where... <laughs> You and I already mentioned a little bit. His script is influenced by these teachings from Werner Erhard, which is apparently called EST, his Erhard Seminars Training, because Joel and Diana Ross were very enamored of this man and apparently was starting to influence the script. Werner Erhard <laughs> feels like today's Tony Robbins. Whoa, yeah. It's all self-improvement. Mm-hmm. The fact that his training was his name tells me everything I need to know. <laughs> mm-hmm, right? Yeah. He had John Denver behind him. Oh, wow. I could see that. He would sell his intellectual property when he retired in 91 to his employees who then would create the landmark education. Hmm. He is still alive. I'm saying this like... He's still alive? He's still here. Wow. Okay, I'm going into the section called Critics and Disputes. <laughs> oh, tell us. <laughs> Tax fraud allegations. Oh. Obscene. Oh, his daughters retracted allegations of sexual abuse that they made against him. Yikes. Just the fact that his daughters are claiming sexual abuse against him is mm. wild. <laughs> on Larry King for some lawsuit. 
Yikes. Oh, he has a lot of controversy about yeah, him. Yeah, the, the, the controversy list is long. <laughs> oh, no. 2012 Financial Times article stated that Erhardt's influence extends far behind the couple of million people who have done his courses. There is hardly a self-help book or a management training program that does not borrow some of his principles. I mean, this is... <gasps> my brain's going nuts. Whoa. Y'all, most of you know this if you've been listening for a while. I'm a trained life coach. Mm-hmm. It's not something I actively pursue, but I... I do do that kind of work. I've definitely developed it more into community work and circle work. So this stuff always, because there, I'm reading a book right now called Cultish, and like this <sighs> self help world gets quite culty quite quick. Yeah, quite um, quick. Especially when it's just someone's name on everything. That's I know. Little... That's when it's like, what is this actually about? But I about? also think, same thing with Tony Robbins. I think this man, I think Tony Robbins offers a lot of great stuff, but I also feel uneasy in how he does it. Same thing with um, right. Simon Sinek, The Power of Why. I feel the same way yeah. about his stuff. Mm-hmm. Just there's a little like ego-laced squirminess, I feel, mm-hmm. in the presence of what they do. But there is really helpful stuff in it. <laughs> Right, it can have some benefits. That's crazy that like everything is now influenced by that. I mean, now I want to go down a rabbit hole. Oh, this! Oh. I'm sure there's a documentary. So Instagram people are our, our, our double our double uppers who do our Instagram and also do this. Mm-hmm. I'm probably gonna fall down a little bit with Warner. <laughs> I mean, this apparently people would review the Wiz and be like, "Oh my God, the EST is everywhere in the script." That's what apparent. There's this book called what? <laughs> there's this book called The Grove Book of Hollywood. And it notes that the speech delivered by Glinda at the end was yeah, a litany. It's specifically that. <laughs> a litany of EST-like platitudes. The book also makes EST comparisons to the song Believe in Yourself. I mean, because both Joel, who was literally writing the script. Doesn't mean it's not. It's not the Broadway play writing at all. Doesn't he, mean Eastern Standard Time. I know, Eastern Standard Time. He, I guess, and Diana were like, no, we need this. This is improving our lives. So... I'm sure it was. Yeah. That's the thing. Sure it was I'm at sure the time. I'm sure it was. I mm-hmm. just always get a little like, Yikes. Like I think of Nexium and all that yes. stuff that has happened as of recent. Yeah. Because Nexium, I think, actually really helps people. Yeah. But the man who ran it was still running a sex cult within it as well. So. Good times. <laughs> so, and especially now that. that it's like no longer around, it makes me be like, what was this? And it, why didn't it last? Around. God. Under a different name. Under a different name. Landmark Foundation. I don't know what that does. We're gonna. We're gonna. We're gonna. <laughs> we're going to dive into that. This. Is a rabbit hole we are marking. We everyone. will talk about this, and I'm sure it will come up once we oh, reach yeah. those like, scenes. We need, to, we need to get deeper into ES. Yeah. Okay. Moving we're, we're right along. We're gonna convert. Okay. <laughs> we have converted. <laughs> moving right along. Sydney Lumet. Uh, he was born in 1924. He has become our director. He has over 50 films to his credit. He's nominated five times for the Academy Award, four for Best Director, for 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network, The Verdict. Um, 14 of his films were nominated for Oscars. He was one of the most prolific filmmakers of the modern era, directing more than one movie a year on average since his directorial debut in 1957. So he is our director, and he's also known as an actor's director, quote, having worked with the best of them during his career, probably more than any other director. Okay, another member of our creative team, or he's our producer, Rob Cohen, born 1949. Um, He began his career as an executive producer at 20th Century Fox. He produced Mm. and developed numerous high-profile film and television programs. He would later go on to direct... He directed the Fast and Furious films. Crazy. Sidney Lumet was very optimistic about the film. He thought it would be an absolutely unique experience that nobody has ever witnessed before. He said he didn't want to take any influence from the 1939 MGM film. Back to the book, baby. Back to the book. He said it's so different. They're from Kansas. We're New York. They're white. We're black. The score in the books are totally different. We didn't want to overlap. But he is white. But he is white! (laughs) We will keep saying that. He is white. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, as we know, Michael Jackson is cast. We'll save all of that for a future episode. We won't get into that just yet. Ted Ross and Mabel King are brought in to reprise their roles from the musical. Nipsey Russell is cast as the Tin Man. Lena Horne, who at the time is mother-in-law to Lumet. Yeah. Crazy. Um, 
at the time of the production, I think no longer, was cast as Glinda the Good Witch. Richard Pryor portrays the Wiz. The film's choreographer is Lewis Johnson. Quincy Jones becomes the music supervisor. He did not want that job. <laughs> he had to be convinced. He was not super excited about this. You know who did want to be a part of it? Tell me. Librettist Bill Brown. He sent some notes oh, and no. stuff and they just... They said no? They didn't use any of his suggestions. It was just, wow. that's really got to be hard. <laughs> wow. Crazy. Yeah, that's kind of interesting about Quincy. He basically was like, I'm just doing this as a favor to Lumet. Yep. And as we'll get into later, this is Jones's first time working with Michael Jackson. Jones uh, later produced his biggest, like, biggest albums ever. Yeah. This is where they meet. Quincy so, Jones, yeah. Kind of crazy. Then he would sue him later, and that would be a whole big Jones thing. would? Quincy Jones sue Would Michael. sue Michael Jackson? Yeah. A California appeals court on Tuesday overturned most of a 2017 jury verdict awarding Quincy Jones $9.4 in royalties and fees from the Michael Jackson estate over the use of Jones-produced Jackson hits <gasps> in the concert film This Is It and two Cirque du Soleil shows. What? They overturned it. So there was a lawsuit post, I think, Michael passing... From what I guess, of Quincy wanting to cash in. Also, Quincy Jones is the mentor of the young Emily Bear of Barlow and Bear. Whoa. The Bridgerton girls. Oh my gosh, stop. She's like a piano parade. What? He's her mentor? No Mm -hmm. big deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, he originally, Quincy Jones, $9 million win in Michael Jackson royalty suit wiped out. Wow. On appeal. Wiped out on an appeal. Wow. Wow, that's a whole world I don't that understand. That is so... Yeah, I don't get that. Like, we're just suing for millions. We are suing for just, like, a casual million. Yeah, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, like, that's, the fact that's that... That's what comes up the most if you search the two really? of them now. Because it's the most <gasps> present... Recent thing. Recent thing. Yeah. Wow. Was that after his death? I think so, from wow. what I understand. I, it says 2017, all that started. Wow. Okay, that's crazy. Because they met when Michael was 17, I believe. So, that's I mean... Quincy's still here. It's just crazy to think the Wiz is sort of, like, responsible for creating kind of Michael Jackson as we as he, we know him in his, like, prime prime. He's 19? Crazy. Dating Stephanie Mills. We'll talk about that. We will, ch- <laughs> we will chat more about that. All right. We're reaching sort of our final bits here. So filming for The Wiz began on October 3rd, 1977. And it concluded fall. on, yeah, a nice fall, concluded on December 29th, 1977. Um, at the time, while working on The Wiz, Diana leased a house on Long Island with her th- three children. <laughs> she did. <laughs> Rhonda, who was six, Tracy, who was five, and Chudney, who was two. She lived at the Pierre Hotel, while an apartment at the Sherry Netherland was being refurbished for her by famous designer Angelo Dongia. But Rob, the producer, recalls finally she was away from Barry at long last. Um, and Diana was very, very excited about this. As Tara mentioned, Dee Dee Allen is our editor. We actually talk more about her in our following episode, so maybe we'll just save. I'm sure we'll touch on her throughout, of course. She, um, but just so we know, she is our film editor. She is apparently, from what I learned, like one of the, like, has basically changed the game of film editing, especially for women, which was sort of a sexist um, career, mm-hmm. film editing. And last but not least, our cinematographer is Oswald Morris. Fun fact, he received three nominations for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography for his work on the musicals Oliver, Fiddler on the Roof, and The Wiz. And he won the award for his work on Fiddler on the Roof. And that's where our filming is about to begin. Guess where, Em? Guess where? Where is it? Astoria Studios. Astoria! We are starting in Queens. That, this is a rabbit hole in itself. Yeah. The Wiz kind of brought back Astoria Studios. Crazy, right? Because wasn't it shut down? Mm -hmm. So Astoria Studios, which is sincerely where we vote people. Like it's in our neighborhood. So we love Astoria Down the street. It is so cool. It is like having a really fancy, magical thing Mm -hmm. in our neighborhood. Not too far from us. It was initially financed by the famous players Lasby Corporation in 1919, um, but then became Paramount Pictures. Wow. Founded by Adolf Zucker. 
Studios opened in, in 1920, was the East Coast headquarters, and then they stopped using it about seven years later because obviously, as we talked about in our MGM season, filming in New York was not quite mm-hmm. where it was at. Mm-hmm. But a bunch of films were done there, like Animal Crackers starring the Marx Brothers in 1930. Wow. That was down the street from us, Tara. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy. And it would be the site, too, of the first acting film industry school by Paramount Studio, where mm. they would have some training of new talent, developing new talent. First feature-length sound film was made there. New sound techniques were made there. So after... This is where things shift. Obviously, it closes down in the late 20s. After the outbreak of World War II... The property was sold to the War Department, and it was renamed the Army Pictorial Center when it was Mm. taken over by the U.S. Signal Corps. Then from 1942 to 1970, (gasps) it was used to make training films. Whoa! Over 300 being made there each year. Wow. Then the usefulness had worn out by the 70s, the the start of the 70s. Okay, wait, it was still owned by the federal government... But City University of New York was on the complex, but no one could really find a use for this place. WNET occupied the space that was a local educational television station. And then there was an agreement finally reached in December of 1976 that the film industry can begin to move back. There was an agreement reached between the city of New York, representatives of the film industry, the unions, and the federal government. Wow. The agreement called for an interim lease with the Federal General Services Administration to return to the studio to use by the motion picture industry. I think there was a movement to make it a national historic landmark, but I don't think that has happened. We should check on that. Mm. But the whiz would be... One of the first films, I think, if not the first, to bring Astoria Studios back. And now it's wow. actively used. Orange is oh the New gosh, Black. Oh my gosh, Orange is the New Black. Kind of the most notorious one, I think. Yeah. To go through. Go they, to Wiz. They filmed everything there. I know. That's just so weird. It That's literally down the street from us. I you know. know. It gives me chills. It's like, if you join our me? Patreon, we <gasps> are thinking for September to make a. The Wizard of Oz and New York City, which will highly feature The Wiz. Like, yeah. doing a whole oh, walking yeah. tour. Yeah. And giving out fun <gasps> materials. Walking tour? Yeah, I think that'd be really fun. Oh my gosh, y'all. There's lots of random little Wizard of Oz treasures yeah. in the city that I don't even think people know about. I would love to find, like, spots throughout the city. The Diana Ross Where playground. Wiz was filmed, the Diana Ross Playground. Well, that brings me to my last rabbit hole of the episode, which, as we know, this movie is filmed and takes place in New York City in the 1970s, specifically in Harlem, the neighborhood of Harlem. And this is obviously focusing on an all-black cast. This is, like, a very important film. So I just wanted to present a few things. Um, One little piece of history before we get into New York is the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Today, the day that we're recording, which it will be delayed when our listeners hear, it's the anniversary today. Oh, wow. Um, It's a landmark piece of federal legislation in the U.S. that prohibits racial discrimination in voting, signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson. So I just wanted to present that 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 also wasn't that far away from this time period that we're talking about. But yep. a few of these things that I'll present um, are I learned from this incredible podcast called The Bowery Boys, yes. episode 352. It's called The Birth of Black Harlem. Um, they're also two white podcasters who they do an incredible job diving into the history of Harlem. I won't, there's no way I can relay all of their info, but a few highlights. If you want to go listen to that episode, I would highly recommend. But I did not know that Harlem was originally a Dutch village, mm-hmm. formerly organized in 1658, and it was named after a city called Harlem with two A's in the Netherlands. And it was initially called New Harlem, not spelled new at all. N-I-E-U-W, Harlem with two A's. Um, but presencing initially um, 
before the arrival of European settlers, this neighborhood was inhabited by Native Americans, most likely the Lenape people. Mm -hmm. Between 1637 and 1639, a few settlements were established. The settlement of Harlem is formally incorporated in 1660 under the leadership of Peter Stuyvesant. And then the American Revolution comes, and this is when the British come over. They basically burn Harlem to the ground in 1664. Um, and this is when the first documented African Americans in New Harlem come over, and they are unfortunately enslaved. Um, and the village, the village of Harlem, their settlers basically enslaved these people to work their expansive farms and to build and maintain the settlement. By 1790, the census tallies the Harlem district um, has about 115 enslaved people working upper Manhattan's farms and estates. I do have one, one rabbit hole for us that I just was very surprised to find, and it's also still ongoing, so I just wanted to presence it. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So soon after the Dutch village of New Harlem is established in 1658, um, its settlers organized a reformed Dutch church. They construct their first house of worship near the Harlem River, like 125th Street and 1st Ave. So on the east side. Okay. Mm -hmm. 1667, the Harlem River. a plot north of the church was established as the community's first official burial, burial ground. The church eventually relocates somewhere else, but the original cemetery is located still in that place. By 1771, it is formally identified as, quote, the Negro burying ground in historical documents. Harlem's original black population begins to diminish as new immigrant groups are moving into the area and sort of pushing them out in the second half of the 19th century. And this burial ground is basically forgotten. It's basically kind of like paved over and oh in the gosh. 1880s there's an amusement park there's a movie studio and then by 1947 a bus depot is over this very important burial ground to the original people who lived there predominantly people who were buried there were black people today where, where is this? the harlem african burial ground which is what it's called now is located under the southeastern corner of the MTA's decommissioned 126th Street bus depot, which covers the entire block bounded by 1st and 2nd Avenues and 126th and 127th Streets. Documentary evidence of the quarter-acre burial ground came to light during planned rehabilitation of the depot, and in 2015, archaeological testing uncovered human remains there. There is a project called the 126th Street Harlem African Burial Ground Memorial and Mixed Use Project, which has redevelopment plans that include a memorial and a cultural center to acknowledge the site's significance. And I'll link an article that has a really cool wow. drawing that looks really legit. But as of 2020, which I think this article was when it came out, I don't think there's any movement on that. It's still... Is there, are they collecting donations? There is a website, which I will link, which tells you much, much more about the 126th Street African Burial Ground Memorial and Mixed Use Project, which is ongoing. There is an email you can contact. The email is east126project at edc.nyc if you want to know more. But the reason I bring this up is it's obviously, you know, we're talking about Harlem. We're talking about this black woman um, living in Harlem in the 70s. And it's mm. important, I think, to note in reality the racism that has gone on in New York City for centuries. Um, yes. I mean, these, this community, they were basically forgotten and pushed aside. I feel like New York also just gets a pass sometimes. Like, yes. oh, it's, it's the North. Yes. Like, no, we have our own. No, we have a lot of problems. Yeah, our own part of this history, too, yeah. of America's racist history. Yeah. Huge part. I mean, don't get us started on Seneca Village and Central Park. Seneca Village, if you don't know what that is, please look it up. Yeah, that's it's unbelievable what has been unearthed of this thriving, affluent black community that used mm -hmm. to exist on Central Park lands, mm -hmm. but was displaced so Central Park can continue 
parking on, parking parkin on. on. And I mean, this is, it goes on and on. And totally this episode with Bowery, Bowery Boys, if you want more information, it's That's like. A lot. It's deep history. Yeah. It just is so, I mean, I've always wanted to learn more about Harlem and it, it just felt like important to presence. And I mean, just skipping ahead mid 1700s, um, wealthy families, mostly white people are building country homes up north in Harlem because it's like, mm. we're escaping the city. Can you guess one prominent person who moved uptown? Alexander <laughs> Hamilton. He moved uptown. It's right? town. A lot of Jewish <laughs> and Italian immigrants are moving from lower Manhattan thanks yeah. to the New York and Harlem Railroad. So it's becoming, you know, more valuable. And then basically landlords are hiking up their rents. And around this time, black people would live in the worst apartments, but white landlords would charge them more than their white residents, is what I learned. Fun. We have the early 20th century great migration of black people to northern industrial cities after they wanted to leave the Jim Crow South. Um, We also have um, people of African descent from... Uh, communities in the Caribbean who came to the United States hoping for a better life. So Harlem becomes sort of, it's still mostly white people until maybe the 1930s. Um, And it's sort of this place where black people from all over are uniting. Harlem really becomes like a huge part of the city in 1900 with the very first subway, which leads up Lenox Ave. And then we get the Harlem Renaissance, which starts Leading up to the 1920s, um, there's a big boom of poets, Langston Hughes, um, jazz music. And this is really where African Americans are trying to change the narrative and take back their identities, especially in New York. Um, And especially in the arts world, be like, hey, we are not stereotypes. We are actual people. Here's our real thoughts. Here's Mm -hmm. our, we are claiming our identity um, as black people. This leads us, I know I'm skipping a lot, but leads us into the 1970s, which apparently from my research was one of the worst and just darkest periods in Harlem's history, which is where our story takes place. Um, a lot of people living in Harlem had left the neighborhood in search of safer streets and better schools in the suburbs. So those who did remain in Harlem were usually maybe struggling with poverty um, because it just wasn't a great neighborhood and they couldn't really afford to leave. New York City in general in 1970, in the 1970s was notorious for high rates of crime. Um, the subway wasn't really regarded as the safest place. (laughs) Um, as we mentioned, Times Square was just frequented by interesting people. Central Park was a fearful place. There were drug problems. The New York City Police Department was subject to investigation for widespread corruption. Oh, shocker. Crazy. Shocker. Crazy times. A coalition of labor unions distributed pamphlets to arriving visitors in June 1975, warning them to stay away. Wow. February 1975, New York has entered a serious fiscal crisis. The city had run out of money to pay for normal operating expenses and was going to declare bankruptcy. Democrat Ed Koch is elected as mayor in 1977. And by this time, New York had eliminated its short-term debt. So I think things are starting to... Um, go on maybe an up tick. Yeah, and we witnessed that a little bit with the Wiz. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're trying to reclaim yeah. New York. And also, I think that's what we're going to find. The Wiz can maybe show that story. Yes. Of New York becoming a magical yes. playground once again. Yes. Um. So, yeah, I know some of that history was tougher and heavier and definitely don't mean to paint New York or Harlem in a negative light. It's just one little slice of history. And I agree with you completely. It just kind of helps me give context to, I love I, like thinking about her day to day life, like why she maybe doesn't want to leave or what she's feeling or her experiences. Fear, being prominent. Fear yeah. is prominent. 
maybe the struggle that everyone is going through during this time. Um, and that's to, why it's going to be so important, yes. though, to see a happy, yes. thriving black family yes. in Harlem. Yes. Coming up in our next episode. Yes, which is super exciting. So um, I think it just, yeah, adds an, an even deeper level of, like, this is going to be joyful. This is going to be a reclamation, an adventure. Mm-hmm. Okay, we got through a lot. <laughs> if you made it this far, you are a officially a wizard. You are a wizard. So that is our history of the Broadway show, including all of the out-of-town tryouts. Parts one, two, Parts three, four, one, five, two, three, six, four, five. Seven. We haven't even gotten to future iterations. And now leading up to the film and all of our creative team, all of our cast, our history of New York. <laughs> we went to a lot of places. And um, next week we start diving in. Yeah, we'll see you at Aunt Hem's dining room next week. (laughs) See you then. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Down the Yellow Brick Pod. If you are feeling frisky with your fingertips, scroll on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a glowing rate and review. Each person who leaves us a review will be entered to win our end-of-the-season Oz giveaways, Mm. including a gift basket of musical adaptation goods, which, trust me, you aren't going to want to miss. All previous reviews will also be considered in our entries. We see you. Until next time, catch us at Down the Yellow Brick Pod in our Technicolor scrapbook on IG and partying on our Patreon gratitude to our patrons of present and future for making more magic possible. Let's escape to Oz soon, okay? TTYL!